Good evening. Not a whole lot. <laughs> if everyone would make their way to their seat, uh, we do have some people that are registered that haven't made it here quite yet, but we need to get started because uh, we're on a very tight schedule. I'd like to thank all of you for coming out tonight. Uh, welcome all of you here. Um, my name is Brad Boyvin. For those of you who don't know me, uh, which is probably most of you here tonight, I am the event coordinator. I attend Bradford Paines Church in Three Oaks, Michigan. Um, I'm a former student of the Apostolic Bible Institute in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm currently a sophomore at Andrews University in Berrien Springs, Michigan, where I'm pursuing my bachelor's degree in science. Last semester, I was given the opportunity of taking a religion course, and one of the uh, topics of that course, one of our lessons was on the Trinity. And coming from a oneness background gave me the opportunity to have many interesting uh, and enlightening discussions with my professor, both in and out of the classroom, as well as a lot of conversations with fellow classmates and other professors on campus. And we had a lot of discussion, and I learned, first of all, that there's a lot of things about the Trinity that I was misinformed about, as well as there was a lot about the oneness that my professors and fellow students were misinformed about. And we had a lot of wonderful conversation on campus, and I came up with this idea that maybe we should take this discussion to a larger, more public venue so that more people would be able to participate and more people would be able to benefit from it. And to make a very long story short, here we are tonight. Uh, I want to thank our speakers, Dr. Bernard and Dr. Carpenter. Uh, they're both very busy men, and they took time out of their schedules to participate in this event tonight. And my professor of communications from Andrews University, Dr. Harris, if we'd all give them a hand of appreciation. At this time, I'm going to pass the microphone over to Dr. Harris. She's going to open in prayer, go over a few guidelines, and we'll get started right away. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brad. And a big thanks to Brad. This is a huge event to pull off, along with the sponsors of this event and the volunteers. So let's give them a hand. I'm going to open in prayer, and then I'm going to lay down some rules and guidelines, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the schedule and your opportunity to ask questions. But would you bow with me now as we uh, pray? Dear Father, I pray that this will be a time where we will be inspired and informed. Help us to have open minds and open hearts as we discuss the biblical doctrine of God. We pray that what is done and said here tonight will bring honor and glory to you. Amen. I feel a little bit like Charlie Gibson and Jim Lehrer at the presidential debates. <laughs> and I don't know if you watched C-SPAN and caught some of the conversation that they had with the audience before the evening began, but we're going to have a little bit of that conversation, too. I know that um, we have members in the audience who have strong views on this topic. 
And I'm going to ask that you follow the guidelines. The important information on your program asks you to be professional and that you respect both speakers. And what I mean by this is that any kind of outburst, such as cheering or jeering, will not be tolerated. And if you decide to act in this way, you may be removed or asked to leave. Let's go with asked to leave, shall we? <laughs> and I remember, I think it was Jim Lehrer who said he would have the first lady, he would sick the first lady on the people who were misbehaving in the audience that night. And, and I can't do that either, but... Um, we're brothers and sisters here, but we, we don't want to act totally like brothers and sisters, but we do want to act like godly brothers and sisters. That being said, um, we're going to open with Dr. Bernard, who is on my right, your left, and he is representing the oneness position. He's going to have 20 minutes, then Dr. Carpenter who is on my left and your right, will present the Trinitarian position. They'll both have 20 minutes. Then they'll both have 10 minutes to respond. Then we're going to have a short technical break so that the audio equipment, the, the recording, um, can be turned over. It's not an intermission. It's just a very quick break. The house lights will come up a little bit, but it's not time to start talking. Uh, in fact, silent observers, that's your role tonight. Then we are going to have time when you can ask questions, and we will take audience questions um, after the first statements and the first responses. Then after the audience questions, each of our presenters will have a five-minute closing statement. Um, I've also asked... Each of our presenters, Dr. Bernard on the right, who is president of Urshan Graduate School of Theology in St. Louis, and Dr. Eugene Carpenter, who is the divisional chair of religion and philosophy at Bethel College in Mishawaka. I've asked them to take about a minute to tell you briefly about their research interests, what, what they um, enjoy researching and writing about in their special area of expertise. So at this time, um, we'll begin with Dr. David Bernard. Thank you very much, and I want to say thank you to all of you who've come here. And uh, without further ado, let me get right into what I need to talk about. Uh, I am the president of Urshan Graduate School and also a pastor in Austin, Texas. One of my interests is church planting and church growth. My wife and I started a church 12 years ago, and Ten other churches have come out of that one, and uh, I'm a district superintendent in South Texas, so we're planting about 40 or 50 churches in the last couple years. I'm not doing the work, but facilitating it. And then, uh, as far as theologically, my, probably my primary interest is Christology, and I've written a number of books on a general level, and on a more technical or scholarly level, I'm doing some writing on the Holy Spirit the role of the Holy Spirit in justification. I have one wife and three children, two boys, <laughs> um, age 19 and 16, and one girl, age 12. So with that, I want to talk about the doctrine of God. Uh, 
And as we talk, uh, I want you to notice the things we have in common as well as the things that are different. I think the differences are more than semantics, but I think if we could lay aside some of our preconceptions, we might find some surprising commonalities as well. And we all have presuppositions, but let me just state mine up front. I believe in the supreme authority of Scripture, and so I'm going to try to discuss the doctrine of God from the standpoint of Scripture. I believe in progressive revelation from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I believe the Old Testament is the foundation, the New Testament is the fulfillment. Uh, The supreme teaching concerning God and Jesus Christ is found in the New Testament. However, you do have to understand Old Testament concepts and definitions first. You don't discard them or or change them. It's like uh, reading Shakespeare. You've got to learn your ABCs first. It's like doing calculus. You've got to know arithmetic first. And so we'll start with the scriptural doctrine of God in the Old Testament and go to the New Testament and talk more specifically about the identity of Jesus Christ. Uh, Let me give you two foundational scriptures. I'm going to try to give as much scripture as possible, but I'm sure I'll run out of time, so let me make sure I give you at least two. And if you only remember these two, then uh, I will consider it a success. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord is one uh, Lord, there is in all capitals in the King James Version, signifying Jehovah or Yahweh, the unique name by which God revealed himself in the Old Testament. If you go to the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 9, there is a warning inspired by the Holy Spirit. Beware, lest anyone would spoil you or strip you of what you have through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And unfortunately, I think all too much discussion of the doctrine of God has been colored by uh, philosophy and human terminology, although we can't avoid that totally. We've got to really be careful when we use all these terms. And then it's been perpetuated by tradition. But the truth is going to be found in Jesus Christ, as Colossians 2, 9 says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So what I'm going to propose tonight is that the Scriptures teach there is absolutely one God, and He's fully incarnate or fully revealed in Jesus Christ, who is actually the one God manifested in the flesh. Now, the foundational verse, there is one God, that is repeated throughout Scripture, no less than Jesus Christ Himself said, this is the first and greatest commandment of all, Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 30. If you go through the Old Testament, I only have time to touch briefly on on it, but you'll find this consistent emphasis on one God. Uh, There's no other emphasis on two, three, four, many, but to the contrary, the the consistent emphasis, there's only one God. In contrast to the pagan concept of of polytheism or or plurality of gods, uh, Deuteronomy and other passages are trying to tell us that the true God stands unique, alone, He's a personal spirit being who has rationality and will, emotion, but he is absolutely and uniquely one. For example, in Isaiah chapter 43, uh, verse 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, or I am Jehovah, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11, before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Now, I'm alluding to these passages to emphasize what I feel the Bible emphasizes, that God is absolutely one. And as you listen to these phrases, uh, ask yourself if a concept of plurality could be found within the Godhead. 
wouldn't the language be softer? Uh, we are in unity. We agree. But instead, the language is, is as absolute as it can be. Another point, when we compare the Old Testament with the New, we find the identity of Jesus Christ. Because the Old Testament describes the one God in certain terms, the New Testament describes Jesus in those same terms. If we're going to accept both Testaments, we have to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of these statements and that they apply to him. He is indeed the one God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaiah, fully manifested and revealed in the flesh. For example, Jehovah says, I'm the only Savior. There's no one beside me. If we're going to say that Jesus is our Savior, we must confess him as the God of the Old Testament manifested in the flesh. Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Verse 8, is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Verse 24, uh, thy Redeemer and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. So when God created the universe, he did it alone. He did it by himself. And the same one who created us is the same one who redeems us. If we sin against someone and we want to repent, we must make it right to that person. We sin against our heavenly father, the giver of the law. But we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. How can we do that? He only has the authority to forgive us if he is the creator God manifested in the flesh to be our redeemer. Uh, Isaiah 45, 5 through 6, I am the Lord, there is none else. There is no God beside me. Uh, and then uh, if you go to Isaiah 45, 21 through 23, he says, there is no God else beside me, a just God and a savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is none else. I've sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth and righteousness shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. And uh, the New Testament quotes this passage in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 and says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So the Old Testament consistently declares that there is one God, absolutely one, in the strongest possible terms. None else, none like me, none beside me, I'm the first, I'm the last, and so forth. The New Testament reveals that Jesus fulfills these descriptions. The New Testament also emphasizes there's one God. Galatians 3.20, God is one. James 2.19, even the demons understand and believe that God is one. 1 Timothy 2.5, an interesting verse, there is one God, that's the same emphasis as the Old Testament, no change, and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. What's the new revelation of the New Testament? Not a plurality of persons that was unknown to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Isaiah, but the new revelation is that God has come in the flesh in a new way to be our Savior. You see, if we suppose two divine persons, equal in holiness, equal in power, and the gulf of sin has separated us from the first person so that we would need a mediator to come in fellowship with him, then a second divine person could not be that mediator, being just as holy and just as righteous as the first. He, we would need a mediator to approach him as well. But it's the man, Christ Jesus, who is the mediator. In other words, Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. He is God and man at the same time. Therefore, when we believe in him and obey his gospel, we are united with him 
And through him, we are united with God who is incarnate in him. So it's in his human identity as a genuine human being that he became the sacrifice for sin. And that's the key to understanding the statements in the Gospels that refer to Jesus as a true man. We must understand that he was a true man, and as such, he took our place. Everything that we could say about ourselves as humans, Jesus could say about himself, except that he did not sin. Everything that we could say in our relationship with God, Jesus had to be able to say, except he did not need to repent or be born again. So when we find the statements in the Gospels that speak of Jesus in relationship to God, that's not talking about a plurality of persons. That's talking about the authentic humanity of Jesus Christ. Now let me hasten on. The Bible speaks of God as a spirit, John 4, 24. As such, he's invisible to us, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. That's very important when we try to understand terminology about God. The Bible speaks of God in terms of Father, and that does not introduce a new personality than Jehovah, but that is God in parental relationship. You see, before my first child was born, I was not a father. When he was born, I suddenly became a father. I did not become a different person or add a new personality, but I entered a new relationship. And so Malachi 2.10 says, don't we have one father? Has not one God created us all? Hebrews 12.9, God is called the father of spirits. He's the source of life. And so the, the term father speaks of the one true God in relationship, particularly in relationship to the human race. The Bible speaks of God as the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. The term holy refers to God's basic moral nature of holiness. Spirit refers to his non-moral attribute, the basic non-moral character of God, his spirituality. When we say the Holy Spirit, we're speaking of the same one God. Why that term? It refers to God in his spiritual action. Genesis 1-1, God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form, void, darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. God in action. The term Son of God refers to God as he is manifested in the flesh. Notice in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the Bible never speaks of God, never speaks of the eternal Son, but the begotten Son. The Bible never says God the Son, but the Son of God. Let me show you why Jesus is called the Son of God. This is Gabriel speaking to Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, notice, therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Why is Jesus called the Son of God? Not because that's the name of an eternal second person who is manifested in the flesh, but Jesus is called the Son of God because the Spirit of God caused his conception. The term son refers to the incarnation. The term son is limited by time. The term son always is in connection with flesh. In other words, God as he is manifested in the flesh. Jesus is eternal as the one God, but his coming in the flesh is not eternal. The Bible speaks of the word of God. John 1, 1, the word was with God, pertained to God. The word was God. That's God in his very identity. Verse 14, the word was made flesh. That's Jesus, God manifested in the flesh. The word is God in self-disclosure, God uttering himself. Matthew 28, 19, the only passage in the Bible that speaks of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in one statement, it talks about the plan of salvation, and it talks about baptism in the name, singular, of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What does this mean? 
in order to redeem us from sin, God had to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are not three eternal persons. Um, and if we would use that term, which Scripture does not, we would have to define it. I don't think it could mean three centers of consciousness. If it means three manifestations or three works of God, then that's what I would propose. But in order to save us, Jesus Christ had to be the Son of God. He had to be a human being who could die and shed blood. But in order for that perfect Son to be born, God had to be his Father. God caused the conception, not any earthly man. And then in order for that salvation to be applied to us today, God has to work in our lives as the Holy Spirit. But how is this total work of salvation accomplished? It's through Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Jesus. Because everywhere in the New Testament, Acts 2.38 and on down, the apostles fulfilled the command of Matthew 28.19 by baptizing with the oral invocation of the name of Jesus. That shows us the one God is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. If you turn to Colossians 2.9, which I alluded to earlier, the Godhead is in him bodily. We need to understand that Jesus is both God and Son of God. It's proper to say Jesus is God. For example, in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas, the Jew who was trained from childhood to believe there's only one Lord and one God, he confessed to Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. Titus 2.13, we're looking for the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19, to wit, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a child is born, a son is given. But this child is more than a child. This son is more than a son. He's also called the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. So when the Bible says the Godhead bodily, it means everything that God is, that some total of God's character, nature, attributes, personality is fully revealed in Jesus. Jesus is not one of several persons in the Godhead, but the Godhead is in Jesus. We cannot confine the omnipresence of God. God's spirit filled the universe. God was still God of heaven, giving direction to the angels while Jesus walked on earth. But the fullness of God was incarnate in the man Christ Jesus so that all the fullness of the Godhead is in him. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Every title and attribute of God can be properly applied to Jesus. He is the Son of God, which means he is the human personification or manifestation of God, born under the law, born of a woman. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the, excuse me, made under the law. But he's also the almighty God. The father is fully revealed and incarnate in Jesus Christ. John 10, 30, I and my father are one. Not merely in agreement, but in identity. Because he said, if you've seen me, John 14, 9 through 11, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? If you can't believe the words that I'm saying, look at the works that I've done, and you'll know that the Father dwells in me. He's the one doing the works. So when we understand that the fullness of the God is revealed in Jesus, so much so, if we would go to heaven, I think we would all agree we will see Jesus. And we'll feel the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. We'll also recognize that relationship of God is our heavenly father. But if we were to ask Jesus, so glad to see you, but now I'm ready to go see the father. Take me to him. What would Jesus say? 
You can't change his word. He would say the same thing to us that he told Philip in John 14. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is Jehovah of the Old Testament who revealed himself in Exodus 3 as I am. In John 8, 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus is the fullness of God revealed in flesh. The Holy Spirit is actually the spirit that was in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 says, the Lord is that spirit. John 14, 16 through 18, Jesus says, when I go away, the comforter, the Holy Spirit will come. Another comforter. If you stop there, you might think, well, another person or another God. But then he explains, you already know him. You've already seen him because he dwells with you, but he shall be in you. Not a different identity, not a different person, but the same one they already know in a different relationship and a different form, not in flesh, but in spirit. To cap it off, he says in verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And there the identity is clear. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive Jesus Christ in his fullness. He said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We're gathered in Jesus' name tonight, at least two or three of us, but we don't see Jesus. His promise is fulfilled, though, because he has come in spirit form. If the Holy Spirit is not the spirit of Jesus, then how can we account for the promise? In short, Jesus is the visible manifestation of the one God. When we see him in heaven, we'll know him as our, our father in relationship. We'll see him visibly as the son of God, God manifest in flesh in a glorified eternal body and we will have a body like to his. We'll feel the same spirit that we can feel here on earth, but we'll know God as one. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 3 and verse 4, in the future, in eternity to come, there'll be a new heaven, there'll be a new earth, and the Bible says, the throne of God and of the Lamb. One throne and one on that throne, not two sitting on the same throne, but one who is called God and the Lamb at the same time. Because the verse goes on to say, his servant shall serve him. They shall see, and his name shall be in their forehead. Who is the visible image of the invisible God? Colossians 1.15. It's none other than Jesus Christ. He is the one who's both God and lamb, sovereign and sacrifice, deity and humanity at the same time. What is the supreme name by which God has been revealed throughout human history? It's the name of Jesus. Colossians, uh, Acts 4.12 says, it's the only name given for our salvation. And Philippians uh, tells us that it's the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When we do that, we do not deny the Father, but we glorify the Father because God has chosen to reveal himself to this world through the name of Jesus Christ. So I'm submitting there's one God, absolutely one, and he's fully revealed in Jesus Christ who is the human personification of the one God, or God manifested in the flesh. Thank you, Dr. Bernard. We turn now to Dr. Carpenter for his 20 minutes. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bernard, and uh, you've done an excellent job in 20 minutes. Not much time. Um, I'm married. My wife is Joyce Carpenter. She teaches at Bethel College, and... Uh, does uh, ceramics and pottery. I work at Bethel College and uh, teach. I teach Old Testament, biblical theology. Uh, I have a lot of fun teaching Hebrew. 
love to teach students. I've served as a teaching pastor. I've pastored churches and been involved in various kinds of mission and evangelistic work. And it's a privilege to be here, and I'd like to thank Brad Bovine for uh, inviting me. And I'll prepare to uh, present to you what we think is uh, a reasonable presentation of a Trinitarian view of the one God. And I can say Trinitarians affirm that there is only one God and that God is indivisible. And as Dr. Bernard said, there are many overlaps here. There are some significant differences. God cannot be divided up into three separate parts. God is the one personal God who has, however, shown himself to exist eternally and has shown himself to be active in three personally distinct ways at the same time. Among his people, as Jesus says in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Jesus follows this up with with the assertion that the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Jesus says further of the Spirit, I will ask the Father. He will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Then Jesus, asserting unity in essence with the Spirit comforter, while being distinct from him, says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. This triune God not only abides together in this unity of interpenetration of the Godhead, but also abides within believers, who, receiving the Spirit, are said to receive also the Father and Son. God's chief purpose throughout Scripture is to create a people with whom He, as the one triune God, can relate to and indwell and interpenetrate by His Spirit nature. For God is Spirit and God is love. God is non-material. He is Spirit and non-quantifiable. Yet in Scripture, God has revealed Himself as one in three persons and one who acts in the activities of redemption and restoration and creation. God is asserted to be fully present in Jesus Christ. The same truth is implied with respect to the Holy Spirit. In each of the three ways and persons in which God has revealed himself, God is fully present. Jesus Christ, God's Son, since God is indivisible, and as God's eternal Son, is fully divine with respect to the triune God. The full deity of Jesus Christ is affirmed in Scripture, Colossians 2.9 asserts that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells. We read in other passages that Christ is our great God and Savior, our Lord and God, God over all. He is the beginning and the ending. But a biblical Trinitarian view of God also affirms that God is clearly presented in addition to being the divine eternal Son as divine Father and divine Holy Spirit who are separate personal forms distinct from Christ. This truth has for ages been taken to be the inspired, revealed teaching of Scripture, and it is the product of a rational, spirit-led, reasoned consideration of the nature of God as it is presented in inspired Scripture. It has been maintained by the church down through the centuries. Viewing God as a trinity is not the result of drawing out or extrapolating this truth from natural religion, pagan religions, or mere philosophical thought unaided by the guidance of the church, the Holy Spirit, and Scripture. However, hints of Trinitarianism or theological truth in God's creation, in the remnants of true religion found in paganism and in philosophical thought, since God preserves even the fall in creation, are not to be thrown out as useless, as Paul the Apostle notes in Romans 1. Scripture displays the Holy Spirit along with the Son in Holy Scripture as fully present and fully God in the Godhead. 
While being distinct from the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit is often mentioned alongside of the Father and or Son as a distinct person. Note the following personal activities and presentations of the Holy Spirit. Jesus affirms the personal nature of the Holy Spirit, referring to Him along with the Father and the Son in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paul notes that the Holy Spirit relates to persons as a person. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Colossians 2, 13, 14. The Holy Spirit is our direct access to the Father. For through Him we have access to the Father by one Spirit, Ephesians 2, 18. The Spirit speaks to other persons. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Jesus had ascended to the Father by this time, yet the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus has just now sent, speaks now as a distinct third person. The Holy Spirit is identified as the Spirit of Jesus, who can speak to persons in dreams. When they come to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Lying to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you have received for the land? Peter said to him, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you uh, think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit can be rejected, and he draws others to God through Christ. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51. The Holy Spirit personally instructed Paul. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Peter said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus, Acts 1.16. The Holy Spirit worked in and through the Old Testament prophets and writers. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, but I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. John, in John 14, 16, this counselor is another counselor whom the Father will send. The Holy Spirit teaches the church, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Now, the, note the intricate involvement of the Holy Spirit in God's plan of redemption and how he is referred as distinct from the Son or Father by the use of third-person pronouns. Thus, we see that the Holy Spirit is presented as a conscious center of being who wills, thinks, communicates to other persons the mind of both God and Jesus, as well as his own thoughts. The Spirit is involved in the mission of the Father and the Son from eternity. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person of the triune God, according to the Apostle Paul. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. That means not according to his own will, but according to the Father's will. Here are two divine modes of being, each personal, relating with each other and knowing each other's thoughts and intents. 
But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10. Note especially what the Paul, Apostle Paul says about the unity of the, church, of the church and the triune God. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. If the Holy Spirit can permeate and penetrate us, His flesh and blood, sons and daughters, why is it not possible for the triune God who is Spirit to interpenetrate the persons of the Godhead? The Holy Spirit completes the redemption of us by renewing By His renewing power, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, Titus 3, 5 through 6. The Holy Spirit functions as the Lord of the new covenant of grace and is also identified as the Spirit of the Lord in the same verse, 2 Corinthians 3, 17. The Lord and the Spirit are not personally identified, but the risen Lord speaks in the mode of the Spirit and the new dispensation of the new covenant. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God the Father is clearly set out and distinguished from the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in many passages of Scripture. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In these passages, God is plainly not the same person as the Holy Spirit or Jesus. In Galatians 4, 6, all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned, as well as the fact that Paul says that all three are involved in us, God's sons, by the workings of all three persons of the Trinity in us. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Note that God penetrates us with His Spirit, and we recognize the Abba, Father, from this divine activity and cry out to the Father as the Spirit works in us. God the Father is distinct from the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet for us, there is but one God. The Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we live. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Sixty-five times the New Testament writers refer to God, or Father, Jesus, Son or Lord, and the Holy Spirit in the same context. This is the New Testament author's shorthand way of referring to the one God who works both now and eternity, past and present, in his eternal threefold way of being. Jesus refers to God as his God and as his Father and our Father. Paul the Apostle does the same, 2 Corinthians 1.3. Three final passages reveal the reality of the triune God who does not hide himself. At Jesus' baptism, he is clearly God's Son, and this is witnessed to by the Father's voice and by the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him separately in the form of a dove. In John 17, Jesus prays for the Father to establish a unity of Jesus' followers with Jesus that parallels the unity Jesus has with the Father. John 17, 20 through 23. To have a unity, two persons are understood in the context, not one praying to himself to have a unity with himself. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus requests that his cup of suffering be removed by the Father, yet he submitted to the Father's will. As Olson, church historian and theologian, reiterates, clearly Jesus and the Father are two distinct personal identities, not merely distinct modes of manifestations of a single person. Moreover, a Trinitarian view of God holds that God was in Christ yet fully, yet God the Son became also fully human. Jesus, God, 
incarnated himself into the image of God, a human being. James Orr called the fact that humans are made in God's image the great presupposition of the incarnation. Jesus, the God-man, suffered. God suffered. Christ wept. God wept. Jesus, the man, did not suffer merely as man, but in him, the man. God fully suffered and redeemed us. The triune God is our only, one and only God. The doctrine of the Trinity thus teaches that all three persons of the triune God are involved in every work of God in the world. All acts of God proceed from the transcendent Father through the Son or Word or image in the power of His eminent Holy Spirit. And this is true both during the incarnation and at all other times. Since the way God is and acts while Christ is incarnate reveals the way God is and acts at all times. Hence, the creation itself, for example, also arises from God the Father, proceeds through the Son, and was accomplished by the power of God's Spirit. As such, the act can, in different senses, be attributed to any of the three. In early church fathers, let me refer to those then briefly. In brief, I submit that the early church fathers were Trinitarian to the core in their thinking that they set, and that they set the Trinitarian framework for the church that continued in its essence across the centuries. The framework is still accepted by Christianity and has been affirmed by two recent New Testament theologians. There is no significant evidence that a change from an original oneness doctrine of the New Testament took place in the church. There is no evidence of such a previously approved oneness position. The early church fathers, some of whom had known or could vividly remember the apostles, were unanimous in their Trinitarian reading and understanding of the New Testament. And in the Reformation of the 16th century, the Reformers went back to A, the Scriptures themselves for their doctrines, but to also listen carefully and seriously to the voices of the early church fathers. They often embraced the teachings of those who had been so close to the time of the first apostles. Instead of oneness or modalism being the original position of the church fathers, the modalistic movement and change from the original view of the church fathers, developing Trinitarianism, did not appear until about the late 2nd century A.D., 160 A.D., uh, or, th- or early 3rd century, A.D. 200 to 240 B.C. It is hardly possible to believe that original oneness was stamped out by Trinitarianism in the early church and only reappeared later after the accepted church doctrine of the Trinity had become established. We hear nothing about such a momentous change in the early writings of the church fathers. For example, Roger E. Olson of McMaster Divinity College holds that the Christian belief in the triune God was present from the start and did not appear for the first time at the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople. Rather, 2nd century and 3rd century churchmen and apologists had long before asserted an incipient but clearly but clear early Trinitarian position based on Scripture that was then crystallized in the 4th century. The Holy Spirit continued to lead the church into the truth. Irenaeus, the prolific Christian apologist of the 2nd century, a disciple of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, who had been a companion of John, the disciple of Jesus, affirmed early incipient Trinitarian beliefs about God in A.D. 77 in the early church. Olson traces this Trinitarian position on through church history. The church, both East and West, affirmed it. Medieval and Reformation theologians affirmed it, including the non-credal churches, such as the Anabaptists and the Free Churches. Through the centuries, modalism, subordinationism, and tritheism positions were encountered within Christianity and were considered inadequate expressions of the scriptural presentation of God. In the Shepherd of Hermes in Second Clement and in the First Apology of Justin Martyr, we find them distinguishing the Holy Spirit from the Son of God. As to specific statements by the church fathers, First Clement 58.2 asserts, For as God lives and as the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and the Holy Spirit. In 46.6 he asks, Do we not have one God and one Christ and one Spirit of grace poured out upon us? He's expected his congregation to affirm this statement and answered it positively. 
Ignatius says that Jesus Christ existed before the ages with the Father and appeared at the end of time. The distinctness of Christ from the Father in the Godhead in the Godhead was a fact before time for these authors. He asserts further, let all, let all run together as to one temple of God, as to one altar, to one Jesus Christ who came forth from one Father and remained with the one and returned to the one. Clement hopes that his parishioners will prosper in the Son and Father in the, in the Spirit, both in the beginning and in the end. He, say, he states, For our God, Jesus Christ, was conceived by Mary according to God's plan, both from the seed of David and of the Holy Spirit. The church father Polycarp was a close disciple of John and in his dying words asserted, O Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom to you with him and the Holy Spirit be glory both now and for the ages to come. The preexistence of Christ is declared by these same church fathers. Preexistence and distinctness of Christ from the Father is asserted in the epistle to Barnabas. This is especially clear in chapter 7 of the epistle to Diogenetus. The omnipotent creator of all established among men the word from heaven and fixed it firmly in their hearts, not as one might imagine by sending it to two men, some, two men, some subordinate, but the Father sent the designer and creator of the universe himself, by whom he created the heavens. He sent him in gentleness and meekness as a king might send his son, who is a king. He sent him as God. He sent him as a man to men. Justin Martyr describes a numerically distinct father, son and Holy Spirit. In one apology, 67, he says, we bless the maker and all through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Ghost. Finally, we read things like the following in the church fathers, Athenagoras. Christians are these who recognize the union of the, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and aspire to one central thing, to know the true God and the word that is from Him. What is the unity of the Son with the Father? What is the fellowship of the Father with the Son? What is the Spirit? What is the unity of these <clears throat> mighty powers and the distinction that exists between them, united as they are, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father? It appears to me that the church fathers were firmly Trinitarian. In our day, it might be helpful to cite two mature and highly respected evangelical New Testament scholars. Each has written a complete New Testament theology and used as a textbook in various schools. The first, Howard Marshall, respond, uh, respected evangelical New Testament scholar, theologian, and churchman, asserts the Trinitarian view of God after working through a 750-page New Testament theology. He finds the Trinity then and now as the framework for God's continuing self-revelation. Within this accepted framework, he says, we endeavor humbly to continue to understand and follow in our daily lives the implications of the Trinitarian framework of the New Testament in which there is the fatherhood of God, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. When discussing the Gospel of Matthew, Marshall notes that by the end of the Gospel, Jesus is named in a Trinitarian formula as the Son of God, thus emphasizing his cosmic status for the world after the resurrection. In the ascription in Ephesians, God is identified as the Father of Christ. The Holy Spirit and Christ are mentioned especially. Christ and all three persons are involved in God's redemptive activity. Romans 15.6 asserts that with all our being, we are too with one heart and mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. Marshall notes that biblical assertions and phraseology, the one God, one Spirit, one Lord and Father, are implicitly Trinitarian. In summing up the evidence of Paul, the synoptic Gospels and Acts, Marshall says that uh, implicit Trinitarianism is evident. The fact is, the Holy Spirit is indeed in the Godhead.
Concerning the Gospel of John, Marshall concludes, John provides a solid basis for the understanding of God as a trinity of divine persons in communion with one another and all related to believers. Nevertheless, the personhood of the Spirit is much more inferential than is the case with the Father and the Son, whose names primarily express the existence of relationships. Yet, since God is Spirit in nature, there is no obstacle to understanding the Spirit in personal terms. 30 seconds. I would uh, quickly say concerning Old Testament inside the, uh, it, quickly, the parade example of thinking about the triune God in the Old Testament starts with the creation of human beings in God's image. The enormity of this assertion is difficult to fathom, for it means that human being persons are exactly the place we should look in order to see, according to Scripture itself, hints or evidences of the character and nature of God, both structurally and with respect to the essence of God. For in the moral spiritual realm, for instance, the book of Leviticus reiterates over and over that God's people are to be holy, for he himself is holy. In the Shema, hero Israel, God commands that humans love him with all of their being, and a triad of heart, soul, and strength is used to emphasize what that entails. If humans made in God's image are able to love God in this triadic yet holistic manner, encompassing their whole being, this implies that there may be a structural correspondence to be expected in the God who is being loved and is receiving our love, and who made us in his image, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, God's perfect image, the goal and purpose of persons being made in God's image is realized in a person fully human, fully divine, in one person and mine. Thank you, Dr. Carpenter. And now we go to the response phase with Dr. Bernard taking 10 minutes for the oneness response. I would like to pick up on the last analogy. I think it's a good one in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, humans are created in the image of God, and as such, they do reflect in an imperfect way, but yet they reflect the nature of the God in whom, whose image they're created. If you look at a human being, although you may uh, discern various components, when it's all said and done, that human being has one personality, one center of consciousness, one will, and as such, he is a reflection of the God who created him. And I would uh, strongly affirm that particular analogy. And analogies are imperfect, but I think if you use an example, I can have different relationships and people can know me in those different ways. They can know me as father, as son, as husband, as teacher. But when it's all said and done, they do not know different personalities, nor do those represent different centers of consciousness, but they represent one person. And that my name, David Bernard, encompasses all of those roles simultaneously. Now, some statements were made that God is one in three persons. They are three personally distinct ways, separate personal forms. I think probably separate is too strong for classical Trinitarianism, but yet that term is commonly used. The problem that arises is this implies different centers of consciousness that can interact with each other. That destroys any meaningful use of the word one. How can Deuteronomy 6.4 say the Lord is one in opposition to the pagan beliefs if inside the Lord there are different centers of consciousness talking back and forth with different ideas? Uh, that's why I say you've got to start with the simple ABCs of the Old Testament and decide what one means and what one God means, and then you cannot allow any inferential uh, systems to violate your fundamental premises. And uh, there's a statement of implicit Trinitarianism, but what I see here is a conceptual framework imposed on Scripture. I don't find any scriptural statements of three persons or 
separate personal forms or different centers of consciousness, it would help to have a definition of the word person, and then we could see if that definition can be identified in Scripture. Another example is there's a statement of eternal son, but I don't see any Scripture that actually says there's an eternal son. To the contrary, I've given a Scripture, Luke 1.35, as well as Galatians 4.4 and others, which identifies the son as being born in time. And so if we're going to impose this terminology in this conceptual framework, we've got to have scriptural support, not simply inferences. Now, going a little bit further, there is a distinction between the transcendent God and the human manifestation of God. And when the Bible is speaking of God and his transcendence as the creator and giver of life in relationship to humans, it typically uses the word father. So it's no surprise, in fact, it's essential to the oneness view that you speak of the Father and the Son because you're distinguishing God in his transcendence from the human personification. As I said, Jesus had to be a real human in every way like us except for sin. But if his uh, speaking of the Father and to the Father, that's not differentiating persons in the Godhead, that's demonstrating his authentic humanity. If it demonstrates a distinct or separate person, it would show that that second person would be inferior to the first person, needing help, needing to pray, not having all power, actually saying, my father is greater than I. But if you can understand that as speaking as a human, then you can understand why uh, the Bible would need to speak of father and son in order to clearly identify the human role and human identity of Jesus Christ. Passages such as John 16, 13, which talk about the Holy Spirit revealing the mind of God, there is a conceptual distinction, again, between the transcendent God and his work in the life of believers. It's, one, it's the one spirit, and I would agree with all the statements that the, the Holy Spirit is God, God in spiritual action. But when the Spirit is working in the life of a believer, Sometimes a believer might assume that he automatically has all wisdom and all knowledge. The Spirit speaking through him uh, is automatically going to give the whole counsel of God. But instead, there's a clear statement that the Spirit working in the believer will only speak and do what comes from the transcendent mind of God. So you do have to make a distinction as God in his eternal transcendent essence and God as he works in individual human lives but that's far different from saying there are two centers of consciousness or three centers of consciousness in God when the Scripture has said God is one. Not only one God, but God is one, Galatians 3.20. And I would submit that whatever term we would use to define God, whether you call him a spirit, a being, a person, you have to say he's one of that because he is one. Uh, the baptism of Christ doesn't require different persons. It only requires one omnipresent God. The voice from heaven was a sign for the people, as we see in John 12. The spirit descending in the form of a dove was a sign for John the Baptist, as we see in John chapter 1. But the purpose was the revelation or introduction of Jesus uh, for the inauguration of his ministry. The people on the scene, if they would have discerned of Trinity, this would be the first explicit revelation in human history of three persons. And you should see some surprise, some explicit statement. We thought there was only one personal God, as the way Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses and Isaiah believe, but now we see there's a new revelation of a plurality of persons. But there was no reaction. They only saw Jesus revealed as the Messiah, as the Son of God. So if we look at that scene 2,000 years later, we should not... Uh, imply more than the people who were there saw. 
John 17, Jesus speaks of unity uh, with God. That's speaking as a man in relationship to God, as a role model for us. Uh, It's not speaking of uh, his transcendence because he is the one true God. Uh, By identity, he said, I and my Father are one, John 10, 30. Matthew 28, 19, I did explain that, but I would like to focus more clearly. It says the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I would like to ask, what is that one name? I submit that name is Jesus, and that is why the disciples throughout the book of Acts, they called on the name of Jesus when they uh, performed water baptisms. Now, there was a lot of... uh, uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, the last two verses, 13, 13 uh, and, and verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Uh, that does not imply three different persons. It says the love of God. Now, when the Bible speaks of God, it's one God. However you define him to be, you shouldn't automatically assume if there's more than one person that one person would somehow be more God than the other person's. But love, God is love. That's his eternal nature. So it's most natural to speak of the love of God. But how does the grace of God work in our lives? Not simply because the eternal God, God is love, but not everybody's going to experience his grace. Only those that receive the work of Jesus Christ. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we have communion or fellowship with God and with one another? It's through the Holy Spirit. And so it's natural that these titles would be associated with three different characteristics or works of God, but it would not require God to be three different persons in order to do that. It only requires that God is omnipotent. God can do all things simultaneously. And this is describing the multiplicity of his works and identity. Now, uh, one question to, to ask Was Jesus simply one of three persons who was manifest in the flesh, or was all of God manifest in the flesh? In other words, would we say the Son of God was manifest in the flesh, or are we willing to say God was manifest in the flesh? I believe the latter is the proper way to look at it. Now, there were a lot of discussion of church history, and I did not go into that because I feel like the authority in this matter has got to be the Scripture, not church history. But there are a lot of quotes. If you're going to quote people like Justin Martyr, he had a very subordinationistic view where the Father is superior to the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's not even clear if he saw him as one of the angels or something like that. So you can't be selective in choosing your human authorities. Uh, Some of these same men uh, that were quoted were subordinationistic. They all believed in the essentiality of water baptism for salvation, which many Christian groups do not believe that. And so if you're going to quote them for authorities, people like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, founders of the Protestant Reformation, uh, they stated in their works that the apostles baptized in the name of Jesus. But it's not necessary to follow their example. One minute, Dr. And the first explicit mention of the Trinity is with Tertullian after A.D. 200. Yes, there are references to Father, to Son, to Holy Spirit, but that's the case in the Scripture as well. And I submit that the early writers such as Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, and so on, they spoke in scriptural terms, and they were very quick to speak of Jesus as our God. Uh, And even later on, Irenaeus spoke as the Father, as the invisible of the Son, and the Son as the visible of the Father. So if you're going to go into church history, you don't really find solid Trinitarians until after A.D. 200, and they're not in the majority. Tertullian said they were in the minority. In his day, the majority refused to accept his doctrine 
thinking it was a compromise of Christian monotheism. So it wasn't until probably 300 that the Trinitarian view, as it's modernly known, became predominant. Thank you, Dr. Bernard. Dr. Carpenter, your 10-minute response. Is this thing working? Good. Okay, I'd like to uh, just look at a few things that uh, have been mentioned and that seem to be implied concerning a, a oneness. And I thank the, uh, Mr. Bernard for his uh, interesting and uh, helpful questions. Uh, but it seems to me that oneness as a form of modalism obscures our knowledge of the eternal character of God. Will God be exactly as we know him through the temporary manifestations he gives us according to oneness theology concerning the character of God if they are not the essence of his character and being for eternity? What is God really like? And Trinitarianism asserts that we know him in three persons, one God, and that's the way he is as he has presented himself, and that's the way he is eternally. He does not go back into himself. The seemingly inert picture of the one God that is set forth seems to be a problem. God is love, as asserted by Scripture. But how can an inert, monadic view of God, who is only one, satisfy the demands of the loving personal character of God as love, set forth in, as love is set forth in Scripture? And it is good to go back and see human beings created in the image of God, structurally and in our very essence. And we do have relationships in ourselves. And we look for human relationships. And any analogy is only an analogy and only holds to a certain point. So, all I'm saying and all we're saying is that to think of a God who is a monad and who is only one and in earth in himself, where is the dynamic eternality and creative force of love between persons in that being. Why was oneness so late on the scene, I would still say, and why was it not accepted by the church at large? The historical trail of oneness is not inviting and does not invite great confidence in it as the truth once for all delivered to the saints. Remember the parable of the mustard seed that described the development of the kingdom of God and the church, and that pictures the growth of Trinitarianism. Speaking so often as it does about the separate natures of Christ sometimes, it seems difficult not to conclude that oneness asserts two separate natures in Christ. I'm not sure that I heard uh, Mr. Bernard say that, but in such a way that the incarnation is jeopardized. Jesus, the God-man, was perfectly God and man, but one person mode of being without confusion of natures. When Jesus speaks, the whole person, Jesus, Son of God, Lagos, speaks as one. And in the Incarnation, it appears that the Father, as well as the Son, suffered personally. The Holy Spirit suffered personally, as well as the Son. The entire Godhead suffered at the same time for the redemption of humankind. God's being as Spirit, that's impossible for us at some level to make an analogy to because we simply are not spirit beings. The powerful and convincing presentations of Jesus Christ in John 1, 1 through 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. He became incarnate in the flesh, seems to indicate that this Jesus was the Word and that He was with the Father, with God in the beginning, and that implies eternality. 
Colossians 1, 16 through 17, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. These seem to present the eternal preexistence of Jesus Christ as a separate person, mode of being distinct from the Father who existed with God from eternity and through whom God made the worlds. The I Am passages of John 8.42 clearly refer back to the giving of God's name in Exodus 3.14. Both the divinity and the distinctness of Jesus Christ is involved. The Bible indicates that only God can save us. According to oneness theology, it is at best ambiguous who saves us according to the economic triadic model of God that is sometimes suggested, as opposed to an eminent trinity model. It does not appear that the personal God does save us, but only an appearance or modal appearance of God does so. That is, the whole being of God is not involved in our salvation in this vital way. For certainly the Father God does not abdicate the throne in heaven in order to effect salvation for humanity. A Trinitarian view of the Godhead does not have this problem. If modalism is true, then we have to ask, who is the real God behind the mass of the Father? Your presentations of modalism leaves us wondering who God really is. During the baptism of Jesus, the Father spoke to him, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove, which clearly causes me to conceive of the activity of a triune God, who can act as one God in three ways at the same time. Jesus prayed in John 17 to his Father that his Father would make his disciples one, even as he and the Father were one. Oneness here does not mean exact identity of persons. Jesus is clearly separate from the Father. And Jesus is not praying that God would create a unity of his followers as one personality. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus requests that the Father take this cup from him. Jesus is not, according to a natural reading of the text, praying to himself. And he submits to another's will, the will of the Father. And I might add that sometimes when we're reading Scripture and we see things reflected in Scripture and we say that the people there at that time did not catch what we catch, that's certainly to be expected because this writer inspired by God, is going back and giving us the story of Jesus and putting things into a historical order that's divinely inspired to communicate truth about God. And a bystander there wouldn't necessarily have gotten that at that time. I applaud, however, your firm and strong assertion that Jesus is God, divine, and that he deserves to be worshipped. He is the one who has made our reconciliation with the Father and our salvation possible through the eternal spirit. Of God. I might add, Brevard Childs and Nathan McDonald, Old Testament theologians and commentators in separate studies, have recently noted the inadequacy of an inert monadic view of the oneness asserted of Israel's God in Deuteronomy 6.4 by most commentators and theologians. The creative and redemptive activities of God toward his people shown to be a loving, powerful, active God who acts by his spirit upon his people. His creative word and deed in Genesis anticipates the word of God through whom he made all things, according to John 1, 1 through 14. The activity of God's spirit over the great abyss deep in Genesis 1, 2 indicates the spirit's creative activity in the formation of the heavens and the earth. God's creation of a covenant with Israel at Sinai shows how how he desires to establish a people of his own who once again, as at creation, bear his moral, ethical, and spiritual image as he renews them in his image and establishes a unique relationship with them. He chooses his people and establishes a covenant with them on the basis of his love love for them. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. The one and only God of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 lays claim to the total focus and worship of his covenant God. 
of his covenant people. He alone shall they worship. The one indicates, as the New Living Translation puts it, Israel was to worship the Lord alone as their God, for he wants the exclusive love is establishing with them to be reciprocated in kind. The nature of this one God will be revealed further in Scripture. Daniel 7.13 features the coming Messianic king who is like a son of man in the cl- coming on the clouds of heaven. A human being, but also divine, for he comes with the clouds of heaven, a sure sign of his divinity and of his divine origin. Like the gods of Canaan and other nations of the ancient Near East, who rode the clouds as their royal throne chariots, this scenario communicates to us the fact that this being is divine. Furthermore, his divine origin is indicated by this cloud imagery that surrounded the gods and divine beings. Yet he is presented to the Ancient of Days, who is indeed God, the Ancient Father, who sits on his throne as a separate being from this one who is divine, yet also, like a son of man, a human being. And the divine son of man receives from the Ancient of Days an eternal kingship and kingdom, something that the nations of the ancient Near East had not known. That seems to indicate clearly two separate beings. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Carpenter and Dr. Bernard. And that brings to an end this first section of our program. First questioner. Yes, I have a question for Dr. Bernard, and that is in Luke 22, uh, verse 42, Jesus speaking says, Father, he's praying here in the Mount of Olives, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So we have two different wills going on here, the will of Jesus, and he says, but not my will, your will. I'm just wondering, do relationships have wills, or do persons have wills? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, and I would simply say what's happening here, Jesus, as a true human being, is praying to God. If we can pray such a prayer, then Jesus had to be able to pray the same kind of prayer, otherwise he couldn't be fully human. Now, for Trinitarians, the answer to that question is very easy. Council of Constantinople, which one was it? 680 said uh, one person can have two wills. There were two wills in Jesus, but there's only one person. Uh, It's the human will and the divine will. And the divine will is shared among the three members of the Trinity. So that's the Trinitarian answer to that. I would say we don't have to complicate it with all the relations between three persons and those three persons relating to a human identity. But we can simply say Jesus, as an authentic human being, was praying to God. When he said, not my will, he says, not my will as a human, but I submit to the will of God. Uh, But at the same time, recognizing that God was fully incarnate in him. As Dr. Carpenter has emphasized, we must preserve the integrity of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ is one personal being. But we can't take away from him, that one personal being, the ability to speak as a true human being. Otherwise, he could not be the perfect substitute uh, of sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Now, if you take it logically further and say, well, this is the second person's will in opposition to the first person's will, seems like you've got a conflict between God, the two wills of God. If that is Jesus speaking in a subordinate role as a second person, then your two persons are not co-equal, uh, but you have one who is subordinate to the other. So if, if this prayer means two persons, it also means what kind of persons? It means one superior, one inferior. And I know Trinitarianism doesn't teach that, and I don't teach that. Rather, I think uh, the simple way, and, and if you want a modern theologian, Frank Stagg, who recently passed away, but he was a professor of New Testament 
um, at the Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, he said, this is not one person of God praying to another person of God. This is Jesus as an hum- authentic human being praying to God. Dr. Carpenter? response. So. All, right. <laughs> All right. We'll move on but, to the next question, but, or do you want uh, yeah. to say something? I think, though, we need to, <laughs> one thing I would say is that we are talking about the God-man, and uh, separating, uh, uh, we have to be very careful here in separating God's human, uh, Jesus' human uh, sonship and his divine sonship, because they are one and there is one person. And somehow, I would say, in the mystery of that, the God, Jesus, the God, who is God's Son, is also involved in this. Not just the man. All right, our next question is for Dr. Carpenter. Yes, I have a question. You stated once that... I have a question for you. It boldly stated in the Bible that God is one and old and new. But why did it take so long for the Trinitarian belief to come by? Because if it was, the disciples never taught it. They taught Jesus' name baptism. They taught one of God, and they taught Holy Ghost speaking. Why did it take so long after Jesus died and after the disciples died for this belief to come around? Well, I'm not sure, uh, you know, what is long to, and you're thinking, uh, isn't very long in, in uh, I think, biblical thinking and, and not in my thinking, because you have in the event of Jesus Christ, God doing something that had not been done before. And Jesus has a real difficult time, even in the Gospel of Mark, getting the, his disciples to understand some of the basic things about him, that he is the Son of God, and that the Son of God is going to suffer, and he has to die. And so it takes time whenever God makes a revelation like this for that revelation to be known. Now, Jesus said, when I am gone and the Holy Spirit has come, he will lead you into all truth. So that tells me that there is, uh, once the uh, event of Christ was there, Uh, You had then the call of the Apostle Paul and development in uh, what the Apostle Paul was to take to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And on through the New Testament, uh, as you go down through it chronologically, the book of uh, Revelation gives us some materials that weren't back in the earlier books. So, uh, to me, it's not a long time because already uh, in the early second century, People are talking about that. Now, all I can say there is if you would get like Lightfoot's uh, um, paperback of the early church fathers and read in there uh, and check what some of them have to say about the Trinity, I think that would uh, be sufficient. Okay, Dr. Bernard. Well, I would just say that the explicit formulation of the Trinity, you have to go to the fourth century. So you'd be saying that the second, you'd be saying that the New Testament only has an implicit Trinitarianism. So the fourth century writers are much clearer than the apostles. And then you would say the second and third century people were full of subordinationism and all kind of confused ideas. 
So you would be saying it took several centuries after the apostles to really get this nailed down with proper terminology. And I really think that lowers the view of inspiration of Scripture. I really think the apostles and the other writers of the New Testament had a very clear understanding. And if we can go back to the simplicity of what they expressed, we will be much better off than trying to interject these later developed schemes. All right, the next question for Dr. Bernard. Yes, uh, my understanding of the oneness view, though limited, uh, um, I have the understanding that in the church age that God is revealed through the Holy Spirit, through the person of the Holy Spirit, um, after the ascension and, and Pentecost. But in Acts uh, 9, I'm sorry, in Acts 7, 54 through 60, uh, the stoning of Stephen, it says Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and he looked up to heaven and saw um, it says, uh, he looked up and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. On my reading, it seems that there's three distinct persons there. Could you clarify the, the oneness position there? First of all, uh, we're not saying that, uh, don't, don't read what uh, people who wrote against the modalists say about the modalists and then take that to the 21st century oneness belief. We don't say that God is supremely real, revealed through the Holy Spirit, person of the Holy Spirit. We believe God is a spirit. And I quoted Genesis. The Spirit of God is operative in Genesis. That's God in spiritual action. Now, going specifically to the stoning of Stephen, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Yes, God was his father. He prayed to God. God's Spirit was in him. We believe that's one God who does that. What he saw, if you read carefully, it does not say he saw two persons. It certainly doesn't say he saw three persons. If there were three persons, why would there be an implication you'd see two of them, but you wouldn't see the third one? But it doesn't even say that. It says, I see the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now, God's an invisible spirit. He fills the universe. What is his right hand? It's not a physical location, but throughout Scripture, it refers to the power of God. Exodus fifteen six, thy right hand Oh, God is glorious in power. Um, he delivered Israel by his right hand. It wasn't a physical right hand that came out and pulled him across the Red Sea, but it was the power of God. So Stephen saw Jesus as the glorified Christ, not just the, the humble servant as he walked around earth, but invested with all the power and authority of God. He saw him with the glory of God. But he addressed him, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, if he saw two people standing side by side, he ignored one of them because he simply called on Jesus. So I believe that he saw Jesus Christ in his glorified divine role on the right hand of God. Just as Jesus said, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds at the right hand of power, Matthew 26, 64. We're not going to see two people coming down in the clouds together, one on somebody else's hand, but we're going to see Jesus Christ with, enveloped with all the power of God at the right hand position so to speak. And that's exactly what Stephen saw. So it's consistent with my, uh, what I've explained to you, that there's one God fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus, God is not masked or hidden behind three masks. That's not the terminology. If you want to know what God is really like, see Jesus. The oneness view reveals God through Jesus Christ. You want to know what the love of God is like? Look at Jesus and you'll have the greatest revelation of the love of God. Not a mask of God, but the greatest revelation, a permanent revelation of the love of God and the identity of God. All right, Dr. Carpenter. 
I'd take a different tact on that, and that is that he saw the Son of Man, and that does not, that means Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And the right hand of God is a shorthand Jewish way of talking about God. It's paraphrases, and it's like saying the name. That's standing for God. And so at the right hand of God means in God's presence, a separate being. All right, our next question is for Dr. Carpenter. Dr. Car Carpenter, question. Um, in the Old Testament, we realize that, um, that we know that that, lot, that means things to come. Um, can you explain to me the Ark of the Covenant, what does that represent? What, what, how many materials that it was made out of? And how does it correlate uh, to the New Testament? Was the, uh, was the place where God, the presence of God, dwelt. Uh, and the cherubim uh, surrounded it. It's the throne place of God. And uh, that's, the, the, that's the symbolism. Of course, the whole, that goes with the uh, tabernacle and the temple. And the tabernacle and the temple, of course, were representative in the Old Testament of the presence of God. Of course, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus replaces that because he says somebody standing right here is greater than the temple and that is true and that's so that we will know that this man Jesus Christ who has been born of a woman indeed amazingly is God he is divine and then you can also go on to the uh, 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 into Revelation where when John finally at the end of uh, nearly to the end of the book of Revelation finally does see the ark of God again as it's revealed in heaven. But there is also Jesus separate from that ark as well. Thank you, Dr. Bernard. I would say the tabernacle points to Jesus uh, in, in every way. We're wondering how Jesus can be the full revelation, but he is the high priest who goes behind the veil. His flesh is the veil. He is also the sacrifice that the high priest offers. He is the blood. He is the mercy seat and he's the blood offered on the mercy seat. So I believe the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God, the visible presence of God in the midst of his people. That's who Jesus is. I don't believe you can see God standing side by side beside Jesus because God is a spirit. No man has seen God at any time, John 1.18, and that was written after the events, say, for example, of Stephen. Uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. So I see the Ark of the Covenant as a, as a great typology um, that the focal point, the throne of God, the glory of God in the midst of his people, and that's who Jesus is in the New Testament. Thank you. Next question for Dr. Bernard. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bernard and Dr. Carpenter. I'd uh, like to speak to the idea that uh, Jesus and the Father are both represented eternally in heaven. And uh, I'd like to read uh, four, four verses of the scripture and also ask you to talk about the one, uh, and I'm not that familiar with it, but it's where I believe David is talking about the Messiah and he says something to the effect of my Lord, 
his Lord. I think you know the one I'm referring to. And the other one is found in uh, Corinthians chapter 12, or I'm sorry, chapter 15, verses 24 through 28. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until God has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been made, everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. all right. that, uh, I think superficially, that's probably a difficult scripture for both the Trinitarian and Oneness view. Superficially, the Jehovah's Witnesses would like that because it makes the Son... If the Son is distinct, the Son is subordinate. But I think if you tie the other passage, which is Psalm 110, uh, it's talking about the Messiah to come, that Jehovah is going to uh, exalt the Messiah and put all enemies under his feet. And this is talking about the human king to come, who is, we know from the rest of Scripture, God manifests in the flesh. But nevertheless, it's important to see that. So in 1 Corinthians 15, we see what's happening. Right now, we're in the kingdom of the Son. Uh, we're being uh, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The messianic uh, promise is being fulfilled. But the purpose is to one day bring us back to the eternal state. One day, there will need, be no more need for redemption. There will be no ongoing sin. But everything will be established according to God's eternal plan, and God will simply be what he was from the beginning. While Jesus will always be God manifested in flesh in a human body, he will no longer be the media, act in the mediatorial role. There will be no more need for that. So right now we're in the kingdom of the Son, the age of mediation and redemption culminating in the last judgment. But in the age to come, it won't be the kingdom of the Son. It will simply be the kingdom of God as it was before. Now, if you look at that as one person and another person, then the son becomes subordinate to the other person, contrary to the classical doctrine of the Trinity. But if you look at it from my point of view, as I just explained, through the role of mediation, then it subordinates that role back into the eternal identity of God. And that corresponds with Ephesians 5.26, where it says that Jesus will present the church to himself, not to someone else. So in 1 Corinthians, the son presents the kingdom to the Father. In uh, Ephesians, Jesus presents the church to himself. It's two different ways of describing the th same thing, but the end result is one God fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And remember Revelation 22, God and the Lamb, not as two persons on two thrones, not as two persons sitting on uh, one on each other on one throne, but one person on one throne, both God and the Lamb at the same time. And I think that summarizes that passage. Dr. Carpenter. Yeah, I think that uh, what you have is uh, God dealing and working with his son. And we're talking about uh, redemption. And we're talking about God and the son in relationship to humanity and establishing his people and establishing the kingdom of God. 
Jesus had the opportunity when he was tempted by the devil uh, to uh, give in to the devil and get his kingdom then in an easy way, in a, in a wrong way. But he said, no, I will not do that. I will be the true son of God, the true God-man, even though I could turn these stones into bread, and submit myself, and I will take the way of the suffering servant. And that's the God-man doing that. And so whenever we see God completing things and putting all things under the feet of Jesus, the son, and we, and we see uh, uh, so that God can be all in all, the triune God can be all in all, then that's what we're talking about and not the, some eternal uh, dimension of God outside of the biblical story of God rescuing and redeeming and establishing that which he has always intended to do. And so the subordinationism that might be seen there by some is not, in fact, there in the Godhead. God is simply completing and giving to Jesus the full honor and glory and power that he has promised him. It almost reminds you of, well, it does remind you of, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where God gives to, that being the Son of Man, an eternal kingdom. I can tell you, you can go back into ancient Near Eastern history and go to Ur 3, one of the early uh, cities that were uh, from, the city from which uh, Abraham came, and that city fell. And there was a lament for that city. But it was inter it's interesting what the text says. It was time for that city to fall. The kingdoms of this world fall. Uh, not so, according to Daniel, because that son of man gets a kingdom that will last forever. So seen in that light, I don't see any uh, challenge or problem for the imminent Godhead that we're talking about. We're talking about the economic Godhead. The next question for Dr. Carpenter comes from the internet. It was submitted uh, earlier by um, on the website, and this is for Dr. Carpenter. Please explain the pre-existent Christ, the humanity and deity of Christ during the incarnation, and the role of the Spirit in conception of quote the holy thing. That's too easy. <laughs> Take it away. Okay. <laughs> Take, uh, they're asking for the, the activity of the whole... Uh, can I hear the question again? I want to get sure. it in. <laughs> Maybe we should give it to both, both of our presenters. Well... Please explain the preexistent Christ, the humanity and deity of Christ during the incarnation and the role of spirit in conception of the holy thing. Okay. Humanity and divinity of Christ in the, uh, at the inception or at the conception of God. It's a miracle, and it's the power of God working upon human flesh and human, uh, the human ability to uh, generate and to be born. And so that uh, is the ability of God to produce a true human being by his spirit is no, uh, it's amazing to us on our, in our thinking 
But it's not amazing to God that he can create a being, a human, who is indeed 100% human, yet has a divine power for its, uh, for its genesis. The role of the Holy Spirit is exactly that. God, you see the Holy Spirit uh, in Genesis uh, 1 2. He hovers over God's creation, over the Tehom, over the deep. And it is indeed, it is the powerful generation of the power of the Spirit of God that works with the spoken word to bring about order and bring about a cosmos. So, uh, bringing forth a human being by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the way I would see them working together. Okay, Dr. Bernard? I think I would probably agree with that answer, but I would add to that. The Bible specifically says that what was conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.18, Matthew 1.20, Luke 1.35. So that does bring a problem for Trinitarianism if you're trying to distinguish Holy Spirit from Father. By definition of terms, the one who causes conception is the Father. If you think of God as one personal being, one spirit being, then when you speak of God, uh, Jesus in relationship to God as we're in relation to God as humans, he says our Father. That's great, fine. But when you think of the God causing the conception, that's God in spiritual action, the Holy Spirit. But if you think of those as two different persons, then the Holy Spirit is the Father of Jesus and the Father is the Father of Jesus. He would have two fathers. But when you look at the Holy Spirit as God in his supernatural action, then you understand uh, how it can be said the Holy Spirit caused the conception of Jesus. And notice I've pointed out Luke 135. That's a scriptural definition of the Son of God. There's no scriptural definition of eternal son, but Jesus is called the son of God because, no stock here, God caused him to be born. Just like I am the father of my children because I'm the one that caused them to be born, God is the father of Jesus, not Joseph, because God supernaturally caused the child to be born. Okay, um, question for Dr. Bernard from the internet or a person using the internet. <laughs> One person. <laughs> Was the man Jesus anointed by or inhabited by the Holy Ghost? both. He was anointed by the Spirit. He was inhabited by the Spirit. But I think I need to go a step further. I don't see Jesus as filled with the Spirit like we are filled with the Spirit as with a separate identity. Jesus was God by his human identity, the Father who dwells in me and I in him. So we cannot separate Spirit and flesh in Jesus. We can see him as a true human being, such as when he grew thirsty, but we, can, but we cannot separate deity and humanity in him. So I'd be more comfortable as saying God was incarnate. The spirit was incarnate in Christ. So it is an anointing from a human point of view. He was an anointed king. It is an inhabitation. He did speak in that language of indwelling, but he's also God by identity. Um, in, in other words, we can say Jesus is God that flatly and baldly, and we would be correct because we would be saying what Thomas said. Dr. Carpenter's response. Oh, by virtue of uh, being filled with the Spirit, being born of the Spirit, that already includes anointing. 
So I don't see two separate things. One who is born of the Spirit is automatically uh, anointed by the Spirit. And uh, the Holy Spirit is the cause of Christ's birth. The Father sent the Spirit. So the triune God, as triune God, does. The Father has a part in the birth, and the Holy Spirit has a part in the birth of the, of the Son. All right, uh, Dr. Carpenter, here's another question from a, a man or a woman from the Internet. In heaven, will I see only Jesus Christ as one of three persons in the Godhead? Okay. Well, we have uh, the statement uh, in, uh, in Revelations that John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, and it had no need of the sun or the moon or the stars to enlighten uh, that city because in the very midst of it was God himself, and he himself will be the light of that city. And uh, included in that intrinsically without necessarily being added by the book of Revelation, which is itself in its context is Trinitarian, the three are included in that honor and glory slight as God lights the new Jerusalem that comes down. Dr. Bernard? I think it, we ought to just focus on this. When we get to heaven, are we going to see Father, Son, and Spirit as three distinct separate bodies? If so, there is no meaningful sense in which we say God is one. If I ask a man on the street with no religious background, much less a Jew or Muslim, and say, look at us up here, how many humans are there? And it, they would say three. And so if you can see three bodily distinctions of God simultaneously, eternally in heaven, then in any meaningful sense of the word, you have three, not one. I think all you can answer, consistent with Scripture, is there's one on the throne, John 4, 2. And he is Jesus Christ. Symbolically, as the lamb, we're not going to see a physical lamb in heaven, but symbolically as a lamb, he comes down from the throne and comes back to the throne, but never leaves the throne because he does the work of incarnation and atonement. But he's holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which is and was and is to come. Revelation 4, 8, and that's given of Jesus in Revelation 1, 8. So I think in heaven, we're going to see Jesus. Dr. Carpenter? They have no need. Uh, they will have need, uh, not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun or the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And uh, the implication clearly, as I said, throughout the book intrinsically, is that God uh, is going to continue to relate to his people, certainly as lamb, but as father and as Holy Spirit. As he has revealed himself in his triunity, that will be the continuing uh, mode of his existence forever. But you can also say, yes, there is one God here. And the Holy Spirit that permeates his people, us, permeates us, also permeates spirit, the spirit God, the three. And we will have the fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit throughout eternity as we have now. Let's have another question for um, Dr. Carpenter. Us wondrous people are many times uh, we are referred to by the 
Trinitarians as cultic. And yet they say that we are unique in the fact that what we teach, we do not go outside of the confines of Scripture. Uh, and yet I see a paradox tonight as our Trinitarian friend, he quoted all kinds of things that was out of the, you know, not uh, from history, not from Scripture. Uh, my question is, 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 is this, and that is, as Dr. Criswell said, when he said, you good Baptist folk, if you say you're going to see multiple persons when you get to heaven, he said, then you believe in the multiplication of God. And he said, when we get to heaven, we're going to see one. He said, in the Old Testament, we call him Jehovah. In the New, we call him Jesus. And so I would like to ask Dr. Carpenter, are we going to see three and be termed polytheism? Or are we going to be monotheist and see one? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Carpenter. We will see one, one God, and we will see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they all agree in one and agree in spirit and goal and purpose and character. Now, I didn't go outside Scripture to start thinking trinitarily. The Trinity is something that, as I stated in my paper, you don't get from logic, you don't get from philosophy, you don't get from the church fathers. What you get from the church fathers, I might add, is the development of what they found after they read Scripture and, scripture and believed it implied Trinitarianism. So I'm going to see the one God, but I am going to be related to him throughout eternity just like I'm related to him now, through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's spirit. Now, can I tell you what he's going to look like? Nope. There's only one God. I relate to him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dr. Bernard? Well, I think if you're saying that you will only see one personal being, then we're in agreement. The only thing I would add is who is that one? And if you can see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, then we've got substantial agreement here tonight. I think certainly our finite human minds cannot understand or comprehend the infinite God. But what he has revealed, we can understand. And what he's revealed himself to be is in Jesus Christ. That's how we relate to God. And so in the book of Revelation, I think it is clear we're only going to see one on the throne. And he is... Jesus Christ. If you read chapter 1, the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which is and was and is to come that sits on the throne in Revelation 4, is also said to be the one that lives and was dead, alive forevermore. And that's none other than Jesus Christ. So I think we can give a simple, concise, clear answer to that. Thank you. And now time for closing statements. We'll start with Dr. Bernard, five minutes, then Dr. Carpenter, five minutes, and then Dr. Carpenter will close with our closing prayer. I would like to say I do appreciate Dr. Carpenter and Dr. Harris. I think we've had a good discussion tonight and I, I appreciate all of you being involved. Let me just recap a few things. I wish that we could get a more clear 
um, ex explanation of what is the one name of Matthew 28, 19. I submit it's not the generic name God because that would not distinguish us from other theistic beliefs, uh, nor is it Jehovah or Yahweh. That's the Old Testament revelation. But the supreme revelation of the New Testament is Jesus, which means Jehovah Savior. It incorporates the Old Testament name, but adds the supreme revelation that God has become our Savior. I would like to get a definition of the word person. Does it mean a different center of consciousness? I have heard the term separate being stated, and I'm wondering if, if the Trinitarians are really willing to stick with this idea of separate beings or separate uh, persons or separate bodies in eternity? Or will we actually, in fact, see one visible body? And if so, who is that one? I really think we're close to an agreement if we can understand that one we'll see in heaven is Jesus. Uh, if I understood the statement, if God is a trinity like one person, well, then I think we're pretty close. If God is a trinity like I'm a trinity, then maybe we're closer than we think. If we are going to experience God in eternity like we experience him now, then maybe we're closer than we think because I don't think we feel three different spirits here tonight. I don't think we have three spirits in our heart. I don't think we can... Uh, identify one spirit on one side of the building, another on another, and I'm not being facetious. I'm just trying to focus it in terms that we can understand. If we really are going to experience God in heaven as we do now, I think that's true. We're going to see Jesus, and we're going to feel the Holy Spirit, which is his spirit, and we're going to know him in a relationship as our Father. As Dr. Carpenter pointed out in John 14, 18, I will not leave you comfortless. It's literally orphanos in the Greek. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. When you receive my spirit, you will have me, Jesus, and you will have me as your father so that you will not be an orphan. It sounds like Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is all included, but not as three separate beings or persons, but as one personal God. Daniel 7 was mentioned several times. I would simply say the ancient of days in Daniel 7 is identified with Jesus in Revelation 1, so go read it. Jesus is both the ancient of days and the Son of Man. He's the only one who can fulfill both roles. Why does, let me just summarize the biblical doctrine of God as I understand it. There's one indivisible God with no distinction of persons. And Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead incarnate. Not just one of three persons, but all the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. All the names and titles of deity, all the functions and roles of deity properly apply to him. We cannot exclude any title or name of deity from Jesus he is the fulfillment of all that God is and has revealed himself to be. Why is that important? Because our creator became our savior. He loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. That doesn't mean he sent someone else. That means he gave of himself. He came in human flesh and laid down his human life for us. And that means our savior is also the one who comes to dwell in us by his spirit, not a different person, but the same spirit that works in our lives is the same God who gave the sacrifice for us. Our creator became our savior, and our savior comes to dwell in us to give us power to live for him. And so Colossians 2, 9 is very true. After saying in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, scripture says, and you are complete in him. If all you know is Jesus, you know enough to repent. 
If all you know is Jesus, you know enough to be baptized the scriptural way. If all you know is Jesus, you know enough to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If all you know is Jesus, you can cast out demons in the name of Jesus. You can be healed in the name of Jesus. I've had the privilege personally of baptizing Buddhists, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, agnostics, as well as a variety of Christians and Pentecostals and Charismatics in the name of Jesus and watching them as they're filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in a heavenly language, a language they didn't learn by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it comes when we preach Jesus. It doesn't come when we try to explain a variety of doctrines, but if we proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, the revelation of the Almighty God in the flesh, then we find all the work of God is made available to us. That doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to study. We must, but it means from start to finish, what we need is Jesus Christ. Thank you. Dr. Carpenter. I appreciate those words. And certainly as we sit here and talk, uh, I'm reminded here of a a quote that I put down earlier in in my paper and didn't read. And a little bit on the lighter side, uh, let me note that the great North African church father and theologian, Augustine of Hippo, asserted that whoever denies the Trinity is in danger of losing his salvation. Whoever denies, whoever tries to understand the Trinity is in danger of losing his mind. Uh, so. Okay. And uh, a couple of things have been uh, brought up here. Um, person, that is a problem uh, to use that term because in our culture we mean something different from what that term meant back when it was used in the fourth century something like persona, and you have to get into Latin terms and so on, which I, uh, I'm sure you don't want me to do right here. Uh, maybe mode of being is a better way of putting it. Um, but these things need to be worked on. Trinitarian thinking, however, still seems in my thinking to be the best framework within which we can experience the mighty economic trinity and the imminent trinity of God. Another thing, though, that uh, uh, David Bernard has said that I want to uh, support, we don't experience God by just trying to fathom his depth intellectually. We need to encounter him through the Lord Jesus Christ and his powerful spirit. And certainly, uh, I don't think he is and I don't think I am trying to build up some Gnostic or esoteric knowledge that you have to hold of the Trinity or of oneness in order to be saved. Scripture says, he that hath the Son hath the Father also. And I think that's important to remember. But I will, would like to finish with a uh, few words here. And I'll dispense with discussing right now many of the various analogies that have been put forth as ways of conceiving, experiencing the Trinity. And whenever you're trying to do that, it's difficult because we're trying to catch a picture of the spiritual world and put it into concrete terms. And you can only do that to a certain extent. So I will, not, um, I will note only that in my opinion, the fact that humans are made in God's image both theologically anthropologically and logically provides the most basic, solid basis 
for finding a biblically acceptable way of thinking of ourselves and God. God is a person and we bear his image, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, both structurally and in our being and character. We are beings that are gregarious, made for social relationships on both the human and divine levels. We are to image God. That means image him in our very being. We enjoy relationships with others and with ourselves as well as supremely with God. The Trinity provides the basis of thinking about God as a social being, even though he is one being. We too are individual beings in God's image, but we commune with ourselves and our inner selves and being. We are body, soul, and spirit. We reach out to others by our words and our spirits. We love ourselves, as Jesus said, and we love to commune with ourselves. We love others and love to relate to others. We desire and need to be bound with others into a community by the spirit and the words and actions of that community. We are not monads or an inert oneness in our being, but bearers of God's dynamic image so that we truly inherently share ourselves with others. But we also enjoy ourselves in communion. But above all, we we reach out to the one we image and the Lord reaches out to us, touching us by his spirit and indwelling us. In this way, he communicates the triune Godhead to us. Meditation and other spiritual disciplines teach us to commune with ourselves so that we can commune with others even better and commune better with God. God's image is reflected in us in this situation, structurally and substantively, represents this triadic nature. We image him as weak, contingent, dependent beings, but by his dynamic creative power, we do image him. As Millard Erickson says, there is a sense in which the fact that God is love requires that he be more than one person, or at least a relational being in himself. Or, I would add that God is more than an inert one. He is a dynamic God throughout Scripture who reaches out to touch his people according to the true essence of his being. A God who is not social in the essence of his being smacks of Allah of Islam. Love must have both a subject and an object and a means of communicating love to another. The interpenetration, technical term, perichoresis, of the persons of the Trinity provide the perfect triangle of persons to express love, reaching out to even a third person. The number three symbolizes perfection in Scripture. The author of Ecclesiastes knows that even on the human plane, a threefold cord of relationship is not easily broken. Ecclesiastes 4.12. God comes to us for communion, as John 14.23 says. If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And as Paul says in Romans 5.5, the love of God that creates fellowship is present because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. And motivated by the Holy Spirit, we offer our triadic yet unified response of love to the Lord with our whole being, heart, soul, and strength, as he commanded us to do as beings in his image. This dynamic imaging of the triune God in perfect love will not end. This imaging of the triune God in his people will not dissolve, for we are to image him and enjoy him forever in an eternal relationship. And now it's time for the benediction. Uh, Oh, excuse me. Oh, okay. Two Reverend Carpenters. (laughs) I did not know that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, uh, Brad, for the work you've done putting this together. And thank you, Dr. Bernard and Dr. Carpenter. And we are not related that I know of. Uh, except through Adam, and uh, so uh, we are related that way. Uh, Why don't you stand with us together? Thank you all for coming and participating, and uh, 
being here with us tonight and supporting this event, which I think is very healthy for all of us. We bow our heads with us tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege we have to come together loving you, serving you, devoting our lives to you, wanting, Lord, most of all, to come to a greater knowledge of who you are, to better understand you, to better serve you, to better live for you. And God, we hope and pray that all within this audience tonight has made one decision for sure, and that's they'll give their lives fully and completely to you and serve the Lord Jesus Christ fully with all their heart. We ask, Lord, to bless as we depart from this place Give us a safe journey home tonight and bless the participants here. Bless us all with greater understanding of who you are. Bless us all with greater revelation of who you are. And most of all, Lord, we pray that someday we'll see you on high. And when we do see you, we'll know you, for you, we'll see you as you really are. We love you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.